You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Technology is built by people. And I've had a very fortunate experience of like being on the inside, being an engineer at these platform companies, like seeing how they make decisions and prioritize building. I've also had the unfortunate personal experience of dealing with harassment. As an engineer, I was empowered to actually build the block button. If I weren't there so early, if I hadn't been having this experience as a young woman on the site, being harassed by somebody and so motivated to build this function for myself, there's no way that platform would have prioritized building in the anti-abuse tooling that early. Exciting career changes, they could be in your future, but what does that mean for your wealth? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor today. Get the expertise that you need to help you dream more, demand more, and do more. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. If you've been listening for a while, you know that at Her Money, we talk a lot about setting boundaries, whether it's at work, at home, with your friends and your family. It's so important to learn when to just take a deep breath, say no, and walk away. But there is one place where many of us throw our boundaries out the window, and that's the internet. We spend so much time online that we often don't give a second thought to what we see on the internet and how it affects us. On any given day, you see people tearing each other to pieces in a Twitter thread or getting snarky on Facebook. According to research from Pew, 41% of Americans say they have experienced some sort of online harassment, and that number goes up to 64% when we're talking about adults under age 30. And if you're a woman, you are probably no stranger to random anonymous profiles sending you creepy messages. I got one of those just today. A third of women under age 35 say they've been sexually harassed online, and women, people of color, and queer people often report being targeted for their gender gender, race, or sexuality. These days, online abuse, it's so common that many of us don't even blink at it anymore, even though it can have an enormous impact on our mental health, and in some cases, it might even lead to physical danger. But what do we do? How do we set boundaries and protect ourselves online when we spend so much of our lives plugged in? Are there bigger, more fundamental changes that we can ask for from the websites and the social media platforms that we use every day? Our guest today is helping make the internet a safer place. Tracy Chow is an entrepreneur, a software engineer, and the founder and CEO of Block Party, an app that helps its users filter out harassment on Twitter. She's also a co-founder of Project Include, which is a not-for-profit that uses data and advocacy to increase diversity in the tech industry. And this year, she was chosen as one of Time Magazine's 2022 Women of the Year for her work. Tracy, welcome and congratulations. Well, thank you so much for having me. Wonderful to be here. It is a total pleasure. I want to get right into it. 
There are many people who have a defeatist attitude when it comes to the internet. It's really common to hear people say things like, the internet has always been, it will always be a toxic place. We just have to deal with it. Do you think that's true? No. I think there's a lot of really good stuff on the internet. There's obviously a lot of negative as well that's kind of evolved, but... I think you can also start to see now there's a bit of this rise in like ethical tech, ethical AI movement. There are serious issues, but there's also a lot of people who are genuinely trying to make things better. I'm not going to wax too nostalgic about like the early days of the internet, but there definitely are pieces of the internet that are quite nice. And I think we can get more of it to that kind of state. And I'm quite optimistic about where we are going. Wax nostalgic about the early days of the internet in that it was a safer, gentler internet? I think it's more that when you have smaller communities, they often are people that you know or just going to be a bit safer because there's not as many people there. And so like early on, you might've had these like smaller bulletin boards or smaller communities that people would interact with. And you still do find these pockets, whether it's small discord groups or Facebook groups. Like you still have these little communities that are quite nice. You also see it with like new social networks that are popping up all the time. But I think it's more that as all these networks have gotten bigger with something like Twitter, which is completely open and you can connect with anybody, there's that potential for context collapse where things get taken out of context by somebody you don't know. Maybe an analogy here is almost like you could having a conversation with your friends, let's say like in the real world, maybe you're having a conversation with your friends, your book club at a coffee shop. And what Twitter or the internet allows to happen is all these random people from around the world can overhear just a little bit and then jump in and attack you for not addressing their specific experience. Yeah. You're just like, I'm just trying to have a little conversation with my friends or like a small community and there's a certain context. And now all these other people have jumped in and really want to find fault with whatever you're saying. When I think of the places that the internet can be a nice place, I put our Facebook group. We have a private Facebook group for her money. We've got 20,000 women in there. We don't allow judgment or snark. You know, we shut that down. But as a result, we have 20,000 women who are really helping each other. And it's an incredibly nice place. But not every place is like that. So tell me about your inspiration for Block Party. I know that you've experienced online harassment, and a lot of it came from you sharing your experience as an Asian American woman working in tech. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, my path to working on Block Party has a few different threads in it. In doing a lot of diversity and inclusion activism work was talking about how important it is to have more diversity in the tech industry and our tech workforces being a part of building the technology that everybody's going to be using. I built more of this profile for myself online, talking about things that I didn't think would be that controversial, but apparently can you know annoy some people when you're talking about changes that you want to the status quo. And in some part, it's just increase attention. I think most women who are visible online can speak to this experience of just being attacked for no particular reason, just from visibility, but then also specific to the contents of what you're discussing. There can be people who are upset by what you are saying. And so in particular, talking about diversity and inclusion topics, I would get quite a bit of trolling and harassment. I would characterize the different types of harassment I've gotten in a few different buckets. One is sort of low grade sexism and racism and the stuff that doesn't really matter, but there's quite a lot of it sometimes to much more dedicated and sustained 
stalking and harassment where somebody ends up fixating on something and then just really wants to be in touch, whether it's in an extremely negative or extremely positive, but creepy way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even the outreach I got today, some guy I don't know reached out to tell me that he loved me, right? Like that's creepy. It's creepy. Right. And it's not as creepy. I had about 10 years of working at Time Inc. for Money Magazine. And during about four years of that, I had a guy who would call me routinely and ask if I would drive his van. Gene, can you drive a van? But, you know, like every day. And it was so creepy that I got the security in the building involved and they went to look into it. And, you know, it was fine. But I'm wondering when you received these kinds of threats or insults or even the nice but creepy things. How did you handle that? There's a few levels to it. In the beginning, I would try to just report stuff on the platforms where I was getting this, whether it was Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. With middling success, or shall I say not very much success, most of the time I could see why the platform wouldn't really care because it's hard to know exactly if this is quote unquote, a real threat or just somebody posting things online. The tricky part is knowing when something is a real threat, when it might escalate into a situation that you really do have to be afraid of your physical safety. And I have gone to the police a number of times, quite a frustrating experience as well. Sometimes it's a lack of tech awareness that I've had to deal with where people just don't understand what it means to be interacting with strangers online. a bit surprising. But in other cases, the response I would get from police was essentially, well, we can't do anything until something happens, which is quite frustrating when your whole point in going to the police is to prevent something from happening. But they would tell me like, oh, if this person actually does show up and threatens you at your home, then you can call us. Like, well, can can we avoid that situation? So unfortunately, a lot of the current systems, whether they're with the platform companies like Facebook or Twitter or with law enforcement are not very well set up to handle these situations. My response has largely been to adapt my own life to it, which is somewhat of an unsatisfying answer that you have to change your whole life because some random person has decided to come after you. But one piece of advice I did get, which I thought was really helpful in terms of the psychological framing was It can feel very difficult and you feel very helpless when it seems like there's nothing you can do because somebody is just attacking you or coming after you. And that feeling of helplessness can cause you to spiral. If you turn it around and think about where can I exert agency? How can I be more in control of the situation? It helps quite a bit. So it might even just be something like put yourself in the mindset of the attacker or the stalker and think from their perspective, what are the security holes they might take advantage of? Um, So I find myself thinking, okay, if I'm gonna post this photo publicly, what information does this disclose about me? Are there any security threats here? How would an attacker who's trying to find me use this information? Does it allow them to pinpoint where I am or any patterns that exist in my daily routines. So just always like flipping over to that other perspective. And then it gave me something to do, which is I can now change my behaviors in response to this security situation. It's still very frustrating. It feels quite unfair (laughs) that you might have to completely change your life because of one person. And I often think about this, like with 
I don't know, I might have like 100,000 followers on Twitter and 99,999 of them are totally fine and super cool people. And if I were visiting a city, I might want to post on Twitter and say, look, I'm, I'm in LA, like who wants to meet up? But because there's that one person who's creepy, I can't do that. And that's quite frustrating. It is unfortunately somewhat common. I've heard a, quite a few women tell me this is a situation to deal with, but they also can't talk about it. Because if you were to post it online, that one person would know that you are aware of what is happening with them. Right, right. Of course they can't talk about it. And it makes you just thankful for your friends in real life, right? And the fact that you have a network in, in cities. But the other thing that you did in response was creating Block Party. So tell us about it. What does it do and how does it address these problems that you were having in your personal and professional life? Yeah, I'll talk a bit about the inspiration for Block Party. So I was experiencing a lot of this harassment on Twitter and it's spilled over to Instagram and some other platforms. And originally I had the response, which a lot of people have, which is that, oh, this is just sort of the cost of being online, especially if you're a woman like this is just normal. You just deal with it. And at some point I realized I'm not okay with this. And it's causing me a lot of mental health issues. Like it actually is very disruptive to my life to have to deal with this harassment, to get these insults from people, even if I know that they're harmless in some way. If you think about if somebody says something rude to you, even if you know that it's a baseless accusation or it's a completely baseless insult, it still kind of throws you off and we multiply that by hundreds or thousands. It can really have an impact on your mental health. And I was starting to experience that and feel like, oh, like day to day, that this impacts my entire functioning. It makes it difficult for me to do work. There'd be incidents where it completely take over my life for one or two days. And so that kind of frustration around, this is not okay. Right. And let me just interrupt you for one second to point out that this is exactly why we're talking about this on Her Money, right? Not only do we spend a lot of our own money on technology in a variety of ways, but when we're talking about anything that impacts our ability to function, our ability to work, this becomes a financial issue and mental health is absolutely one of them. Completely. So having been an engineer and worked in product at a few different social platform companies, I was at Facebook, I was at Quora and at Pinterest, I kind of knew that perspective, like what is the platform going to do and what is it not going to do? And I also saw this opportunity for what could actually dramatically improve my own experience, which is automatically filtering this stuff out and giving myself more tools to deal with these situations. So that's roughly how we break down the different product offerings that Block Party has. The sort of first use cases, like day-to-day filtering out of stuff just to get rid of like maybe the low-grade harassment and the things that just bother you, weigh you down. And then the other scenario or use cases, more extreme incidents where something has kind of like picked up or you're dealing with something. So in that first category of products, the sort of background filtering, you can think of it somewhat like a spam filter for social, where if you think about this analogy for your email, when you get spam, it's annoying. It would be very frustrating if it came into your inbox all the time and you had to deal with it and always like filter it out. You can imagine how much worse it'd be if the spam were targeted harassment at you showing up in the middle of all the stuff you're trying to get done. So Block Party automatically filters this stuff out and it removes that harm of even having to see it in the first place. 
we put it into another folder, which we call your lockout folder. It's similar to a spam folder. And it is important to have this other folder for a few cases. One is when there is actually something good that might've gotten over filtered and you want to just make sure that you didn't miss anything, potentially an opportunity or like, you know, a genuine question or, or message that someone has sent to you. You're going to solve that FOMO of like, did I miss something good? You can always right. go check it later. But then also the, the sort of like bad scenarios where there is stuff that you need to be aware of that's happening. So having that situational awareness, like if a lot of the internet is mad at you or threatening you, you should probably know about it instead of just pretending it doesn't exist. And also in the more extreme negative scenarios, if you do need to collect evidence or build documentation to take it to the platform or take it to law enforcement, it's good to have all of that there. The other thing that's quite nice about having this folder construct is that it enables your community to help you. One of the things that has been lost with a lot of the transition of stuff from offline to online is in the offline world, you have your community that can be there to help you with things, to be supportive. If you're walking down the street and getting harassed by somebody, like often there will be other folks, Good Samaritans or other bystanders who might kind of step in and like try to help you. Online, the way a lot of these things are built, the full burden of dealing with the bad stuff is on the person being targeted. And so when something is piling up on you, you're really the only person that can deal with it, that can go through and try to report these people for having harassed you. Even if other people want to help you, they can't do anything. They can't help you clean up the mess. But what we're trying to do with Block Party and having this sort of folder construct is that you can actually delegate to people that you trust, the people we call in our system helpers, they can go through for you, help clean stuff up for you. You can delegate to them to help flag anything that's suspicious or just block and delete the stuff that you don't want to see. So that's the folder construct. That kind of segues into like the, the more extreme scenarios where you need to manage an incident. So we have these tools for situations where you need a little bit more help, more than just sort of like everyday filtering. So we have power tools, like if you need to block a lot of people at once. We let you do that, assert that boundary. <laughs> this sometimes comes up with, if you do end up in a scenario where somebody is trying to attack you and trying to send their followers after you, they might post a tweet that tags you and then kind of direct the harassment your way. Being able to very efficiently block that person, block all the people who retweeted or engaged with that tweet can be super helpful. So these sorts of power tools just give you a bit more control over your experience. And how has it changed your life? and the life of people who are using it, who, who've said, yeah, I'm going to use Block Party. I'm going to put it over my, is it just Twitter or you, you can use it for your other platforms too? Right now it's just Twitter. We are planning to expand beyond it, but I'll say even just for Twitter, for me, it's been life-changing. So it's so great to be able to work on a product that I use personally. It has completely changed my mental health where I don't have to worry about this stuff all the time. I can kind of segregate dealing with the bad stuff to when I'm ready to look at it. But I just don't have that low-grade harassment happening all the time. So I feel like I have all this headspace back. And what we've heard from our users, our customers is similar. It's quite gratifying to hear all the really positive reviews, people saying things like, I didn't even realize how much of my headspace was going to dealing with this stuff until I turned on Block Party and realized how much better things are. Like it's a complete mental health saver. It just gives you back so much of your time and energy. So that feels really nice. We enable people to still be able to use a platform like Twitter. There are also folks who've said like, there's no way Twitter would still be usable for me if I didn't have this level of filtering on. Um, so that's another thing that 
I find super motivating that we are enabling people to continue to participate in the digital society to have a voice. When I think about the people who are the most harassed, it's often women, minorities, people from marginalized backgrounds, people who are trying to say something interesting. And these are the people we most want to hear from that get a lot of the harassment and often are, are driven to like, you know, have to deal with it in a more extreme way. But we're enabling these people to be able to continue to have voice so that the rest of us can all benefit from hearing what they have to say. Yeah. I think it's terrific. I think it was much, much needed. I want to hear a little bit more about your background as a woman in tech because we don't have enough of them. But before we do that, let me just remind everyone that whether you're up with the sun or whether you burn the midnight oil, we all work hard to excel in our careers. It takes grit, determination, it takes skill to get to where you are today. But what if things change? Maybe you want to, like Tracy, launch a business. Maybe you want to go for that big promotion. Maybe you want to move for your dream job. How does that affect your wealth? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor today with an integrated approach to wealth management. That means an approach that looks at your whole life, not just your money, you'll get the expertise that you need to build momentum with your finances and your career. I'm talking with Tracy Chow, CEO and founder of Block Party. Let's talk about your background as a woman working in technology. How did you come up through the ranks and how do you think that the lack of diversity led you to knowing that there was a need for a product like Block Party. Yeah, my story is, if you were to look at it from far away, almost this perfect, charmed story of somebody entering the tech world. Both my parents were software engineers. I grew up in Silicon Valley, studied engineering in school, and it seems like obviously I would end up in tech. The truth of it is actually... I had all these headwinds pushing against me that I now know are likely to be due to gender bias and sexism. So it's kind of this funny thing where I had this draw into the tech industry based on my background, what I'd studied, and just physically being in Silicon Valley, but then also getting a bit of the pushback. And for a long time, I didn't even realize what was happening. I just kind of felt maybe something feels a bit off. Maybe I don't belong in engineering. Maybe I don't belong in tech. I don't know what it is. It's just something feels a little bit off. And it took a while for me to understand, oh, there is this lack of diversity, which is a problem. It has real impacts on what it's like to be in this industry as a woman in engineering, as a woman who is now a founder. I am often in spaces where I'm the only woman or one of very few. And so even if no one is trying to make me feel out of place, it just feels different. It took me a while to realize that this lack of diversity actually has a clear impact on the products we're building. At one level, it's who are the investors and who are the founders that they're backing and what kinds of ideas and problems do they think are big enough to fund? Are problems like harassment significant enough that they deserve to be backed? And then also on the teams where people are actually building the technology Technology is built by people who bring all of their experiences and perspective and biases in when it comes to things like prioritizing what they're going to build in terms of the features, what safeguards they're going to put in. So if we look at Twitter early on, for example, with a fairly homogenous team, 
they didn't necessarily understand the potential for abuse and harassment. And if you belong to a majority demographic that has not really had to deal with these issues of marginalization or abuse or harassment, then it's easy to think this stuff is just an edge case and we don't really have to solve for it now. We don't have to build in the safeguards. We recognize it's a problem, but you know we have to prioritize it's not important enough for us to build solutions for. If you were to compare that to the experience of a woman somebody from any marginalized community who's had to deal with some of these harms before, that it's up front and center in terms of the things that you're thinking about. When I worked at Quora, the question and answer site very early, so the team was like five people when I joined, very early on, even at that stage with a few thousand users on the platform, I was already getting harassed and I pushed for us to build the block button because there was somebody who was bothering me that I wanted to be able to make them go away. Yeah. As an engineer, I was empowered to actually build the block button and make this person the first person ever blocked on the platform, which is extremely gratifying and it's awesome to have that power as an engineer. But I would also think back on that example and realize if I weren't there so early, if I hadn't been having this experience as a young woman on the site being harassed by somebody and so motivated to build this function for myself, there's no way that the platform would have prioritized building in the you know, anti-abuse tooling that early. Yeah, it makes me just reflect back on Facebook's origin story, right? I mean, this was a site built to rate girls, right? How is that not going to lead to harassment and problems? Totally. That's such a good example of how technology is built by people. And we bring in bigger teams and we try to be thoughtful about what we're building and do user research and plan around it. But there's this DNA sometimes that comes along with the early team and the leadership, and you see how these different things are prioritized in the long term in terms of like what types of issues come up and what kinds of investments are made in solving various issues. So I've had a very fortunate experience of like being on the inside, being an engineer at these platform companies, like seeing how they make decisions and prioritize building. I've also had the unfortunate personal experience of dealing with harassment it's not very unusual, unfortunately. But at that intersection, it is a bit rarer to find folks who know how to build the platforms, build the technology solutions, and have also experienced these issues. And so Block Party kind of comes at that intersection for me. It's like, oh, like I have that knowledge, that experience from having been in the Valley a long time, having worked at platform companies, and knowing where the opportunity lies as well in terms of the technology, the product, the business, and also like the very real personal experience. There are good folks who work at companies like Facebook who are working on the anti-abuse tooling. There's also a lot of these folks who've never personally experienced it and don't know what the emotional impact is like or don't necessarily have the instincts to understand all the different nuances and the ways that things might go wrong. I've had folks who work on trust and safety teams. Some of these big platform companies ask me, why isn't blocking and muting enough. Isn't it good enough that we let you block and mute? I was like, well, if I'm going to block somebody, then I've already had to see whatever they sent me that made me want to block them, which is already harmful. Right. And if there are thousands of people posting that at me, like that's a lot of reading of harmful content I need to do first. And then it's a lot of work to go block everybody. Like this just feels a bit mismatched. And they were like, oh, I guess, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> just like hadn't quite thought through all of those scenarios. 
I think your story is incredibly inspiring. And I think that we've probably got listeners out there or mothers of listeners out there who are going to go home and say to their daughters, you know, this is this is a career that maybe you could pursue. Maybe you want to go work in one of these tech companies and fight the good fight. What do you say to these young women? The first thing I would say is remember why it's awesome. Because I won't lie, there will be some challenges in any industry that's very skewed in terms of demographics. If you belong to the minority, there will be difficulties you run into. But remember why it's very cool to be able to be in this industry where you're building products that can really touch people's lives. Technology is so embedded in society now, especially if you work in something like consumer technology. You can be working on the products that people use every day or engaging with every day on their phones. It's such a big impact that you can have. And it's so powerful to be able to have impact in a way that scales so much beyond sort of like one-to-one that you might be able to. But then also, I like to be real with people about there will be challenges. So if you do encounter them, you're not crazy. I don't want to gaslight you, but you can find support in other folks from industry, find a good support network, other people and peers who can validate the experiences you're having and also give you the sort of techniques and moral support to get through them. And if you're listening and you are facing some sort of harassment online or offline, what are the best steps to take? Ooh. A lot of things, a lot of different potential scenarios to be addressing. I think the first thing is sort of like the psychological stance of it's okay to assert your boundaries. So if you are experiencing a bunch of harassment and you need to mute and block a lot of people or take your account private, maybe it's temporarily, it's okay to do that and assert your boundaries. In terms of just like general safety hygiene, make sure all your accounts are secure. So you're using two-factor authentication, Ideally, using a password manager, have strong passwords everywhere. This just prevents against the problem of account takeovers where somebody who's trying to attack you might try to compromise your accounts. Once they've taken it over, they can do a lot of damage with your sort of digital identity. On the more physical safety side, if you are concerned that you might be doxxed or people might release your actual address or show up to where you are, look into services like Delete Me, which help to remove your data, your personally identifiable information, like your address and other information from data brokers. There are a lot of sites you'd be maybe a bit alarmed to know how many of these companies exist out there to just sort of like hoover up all your information and sell it to marketing. You can use a service like Delete Me to go remove your data from these different sites. It does cost money if you are budget constrained. There are ways to go do these opt-out requests and data removal requests manually as well. It just takes a little bit more time. This is fantastic. Tracy, thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you for helping us stay safe online. And if our listeners want to get more information about Block Party or about you, I hesitate to ask, can they follow you? Yes, absolutely. Please follow. So Block Party, you can find us at blockpartyapp.com. On Twitter, we're blockpartyapp underscore. There are a lot of other blog parties. Please don't be confused. We're the online safety tooling. And on Twitter, my account is Trikatora. It is a made up word, T-R-I-K-E-T-O-R-A. But I post way too often on Twitter. If you're ready for your feed to be overwhelmed by me tweeting a lot of things, Um, but very happy to have followers there. Awesome. Thank you for being with us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Sheen. And 
And before we turn to our mailbag, just a big shout out to our friends at BCU. Her Money is supported by BCU, and BCU is a credit union. It's a great credit union that helps its members take control of their money using a variety of financial tools and financial resources. BCU's passion is to empower people to discover financial freedom, and they do that by providing caring support and services that create the value that you deserve. You can learn more about membership and all of the things that BCU offers at bcu.org. And Catherine Tuggle is joining me now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. So this conversation got me to thinking about some of the stuff that we deal with at Her Money. And I feel like we hear from a lot of people who want to pick a fight online. And generally, we block and we don't tolerate. But by the same token, I feel like we've been really lucky. And I was curious what you've encountered over the years growing your career at the same time the internet was growing and all these platforms were getting off the ground. Oh, boy. Yeah. So I'm not much of a fighter, right? I'm not going to get into it with somebody who picks a fight with me on the internet. Generally, I should probably not say that out loud. Guys, don't pick a fight with me on the internet. I will not answer. Sometimes I'll just block people. I tend to have a very thick skin about a lot of this stuff. And just, I mean, I told you my Botox story, right? I mean, this was the one thing that like really, really got to me. So when you're on television, and I don't know if this counts as harassment, but people feel completely free to comment on the way that you look every single day. And so if you Google Jean Chatsky legs, like there's a whole thread, it's old now, but on my, on my legs, I mean, it's ridiculous, but a couple of times early in my career, I have very sort of significant lines in my forehead, like good wrinkle lines, because I'm expressive and I raise my eyebrows. And when Botox debuted, people started coming out of the woodwork and emailing me and telling me if I just got some Botox, those lines would go away. And by the way, I wow. I know, by the way, I eventually did get some Botox when I got old enough to get some Botox. But I also just cut bangs. I was like, don't look at my forehead. I'm just going (laughs) to cut some bangs and you can all just go away. Is that the kind of harassment that you were talking about? Because I do feel like what Tracy was talking about was much more significant and much more nefarious. Right. No matter what you're encountering, I think it all goes back to the same root problem of women not feeling safe and secure to take up space on the internet, in their careers, in their lives, you know, people feeling like they have a right to put you in a box. And obviously that can escalate to people feeling like they have a right to stalk you or or something much more serious. But I think it all comes from the same root problem of people having a problem with women. And the fact that she was there to build the tool into her technology to block is such a beautiful thing. And it makes me think, you know, why we need more women in STEM fields so that we can have technologies that help us advocate for ourselves. Yeah. And you're right that this problem, yes, it exists online and I love that there are tools online, but it's just such a problem out in the world. When I was writing Women With Money and doing my research on why it is 
that women don't feel safe and secure and why we crave safety and security in our financial lives. I think that much of it is because we don't feel it in our lives as a whole. And Gallup every year does a survey or did for many years about how safe women feel walking home at night in their own communities. And the numbers are, in the United States, surprisingly low. And even I looked at, well, does money solve this problem? If you look at the wealthiest neighborhoods, does money solve this problem? And it doesn't. Even in wealthy neighborhoods, women do not feel safe and secure walking home at night in their own communities. And I get it. There was, I live in a beautiful section of Philadelphia. There was a rape in my neighborhood over the weekend, a woman coming home from a bar. And my God. Yeah. And, you know, I get up before it's light out many days to walk the dog and it's frightening. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I wish that we weren't in a place where women still had to deal with this, where we didn't feel like we always had to be on the lookout for a predator, but we do. Yeah. Physically, online, everywhere. Yeah. So thank you, Tracy, for the contribution, Yeah, you know, for taking this big step to help us keep ourselves safe, because it's really up to us to keep ourselves safe. It is really meaningful work. Our first question today comes to us from Kristen. She writes... Hi, Jean. Thank you so much for your podcast and all you do. I've been listening to your show for almost a year now, and I love it. I wanted to get your opinion about a situation I'm working through. I'm a 40-year-old mom of two, ages eight and nine, and I'm the main breadwinner for our family. My husband works part-time and also contributes through remodeling our home, taking care of most household responsibilities, and we share responsibilities with the children. We own two homes in Los Angeles. We live in one and rent the other. The total combined debt on both homes is $1.5 million. We are trying to figure out whether to keep or to sell the rental home. Our primary residence is worth $1.7 million with a loan of $960,000. So if we sold the rental home, we could likely pay it down to $400,000 debt, which is appealing, but also there goes our passive income. The rent on our other property is paying for that mortgage plus an additional $1,600 a month, which we contribute toward our current primary mortgage payment. I'm leaning towards doing whatever we can to keep the rental, but we do find our budget to be extremely tight and we're living paycheck to paycheck right now. I have about 33,000 in company stocks that will vest over the next two years, but we'd like to spend that on a kitchen remodel. I typically get an annual bonus after taxes that averages about $10,000, and I contribute $10,000 annually into an employee stock purchase program where I can purchase discounted stock every six months. I also have $340,000 in my 401k, which I contribute to each paycheck. My concern is that if we do sell, we would need to do so in the next two years in order to avoid capital gains, which would be significant since we bought the home for $310,000 and could sell it for $1.1 million. If we don't sell in the next two years, we'll likely keep the other property for as long as possible. Do you have any thoughts on whether or not to keep or sell the property? Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for writing, Kristen. This is a really interesting one. My thinking on this is that you try to keep the property and that you do it for a couple of reasons. First of all, 
I think this is just an asset that is going to keep on giving. And as you look toward your future, having not just this rental property, but maybe since your husband is remodeling and able to remodel and able to take care of properties, maybe additional properties. I mean, you sound like the type of people who could be landlords well into the future and for whom this could represent a big chunk of your retirement. The other reason that I think that you should try to keep this is because of his place in the family. I wouldn't want you to pull this out from under him, not that you would do it without consulting him, but I wouldn't want you to take away something that is making him feel like a valued contributor. And I wonder how much this plays into that. This plays into his feeling of being a financial contributor to the family. What I would do is actually sit down with a financial advisor. Not that you need one on a daily basis, but I I would like you to do some longer-term planning to get you out of this day-to-day paycheck-to-paycheck mindset. Look at where you envision your money landing in retirement? Do you envision more of it being in the real estate? Do you envision more of it being in the 401k? How will you eventually extract the money out of it? You're only 40 years old, so this could completely and totally change, but having that kind of long-term view, I think, would be incredibly helpful at this point. Last point on my mind, I don't know what rent you are charging for the second home, but I can tell you that rents have gone up a great deal. And if you're not getting market rent, putting yourself on a trajectory where you eventually do get that market rent could ease all of these feelings and the feeling that you are living paycheck to paycheck. So those are my thoughts. I'd keep it if you can figure out a way to do it. And congratulations. It sounds like you guys are doing incredibly well at a very, very young age. So that's fantastic. Thanks for writing. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing and keeping it sounds like the best move. I mean, what a great investment to have on into retirement if you can maintain it. Absolutely. Before we wrap up our mailbag though, Catherine, I do want to let our listeners know if you've got your own questions about how to save or manage your budget, Her Money has a coaching program. It is called Finance Fix and it can help you grow your wealth. It is an eight-week program where you worked with a trained finance coach to build money habits. We get people saving more, spending less, paying down debt, setting longer-term goals, and then roadmapping their way there. And you do it together with other women in the program who are learning with you and supporting you every step of the way. I drop in from time to time as well. Our next session starts November 3rd, and you can sign up at financefix.com. And in today's Thrive, let's talk about resumes. 
Or more specifically, what should not be on your resume? Did you know that employers usually spend only six to seven seconds looking at a resume? I know, right? With so little time on your side, you don't want your resume crowded with information that won't help you land a job. So at hermoney.com, we've got tips for how to keep it tight, keep it clean, and get it seen. First, make sure your resume is current. For many of us, high school and college was a long time ago. So cut any information about the jobs or internships you had back then, as well as your GPA. The one exception is if you just graduated and you're looking for your first full-time job, but if that's not you, feel free to delete. Next, you could probably declutter some of the personal information. You should always, of course, have your name and phone number and email and location, but you don't need to include things like your age or your marital status or your entire physical address. Just listing the city and state is plenty and Don't bother with a headshot. A picture takes up a lot of space you could be using to highlight your experience instead. And by the way, any good employer, any employer who's interested, they're going to look you up on LinkedIn so they'll see your picture there. Once you've cut down those personal details, do a read-through, eliminate fluff words, any adjectives or phrases that take up space without actually being useful. Instead of describing yourself as highly skilled, focus on facts and numbers, like how you grew revenue at your last job by 50%. And while you're doing a close read, double check for any grammar or spelling errors. I can't tell you how many job candidates I have just passed by because of grammar and spelling errors. Lastly, know how to format any gaps in your resume. If you have a gap that you don't want to explain and it was less than a year long, you can hide it on your resume by including the years you were at a previous job instead of specifying the months. But there's also nothing wrong with listing gaps and including a sentence about what you were doing, like saying you were a stay-at-home mom. Either way, don't stress. Many of us have had to take time off work these past few years or chosen to take time off work these past few years, so we get it. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Tracy Chow for showing us how to take back control of our online experience. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.